All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jeff Turner, your host, as always. And it is an honor and a privilege to welcome back this week, Dr. Alexander John Shia. We had him on last year for a Christmas special, and we discussed, um, well, we discussed a lot of things. We discussed his work on the Quadrados uh, material. I really encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast, um, either as an intro to the things we will talk about today or just for the sake of listening to it, because it's jam-packed with good stuff. We also talked about a lot of the mythic symbols of Christmas, and um, we're going to kind of continue in that vein today as part of our Christmas special. But just as a brief intro, Alexander John Shia, um, you know, why don't you just introduce yourself to us? <laughs> Gosh, Jeff, it, it is it is great to be back. Um, I realize that we've got a, a, a big a piece of water between us. I am now living on the Atlantic coast of Spain. Uh, and I'm at this northwest point of Spain, which is a little further west than the west coast of Ireland, if you can imagine that. And, and this is the very green, moist part of Spain. And here we are, mid-December and... Today, the village put up Christmas lights, and I'm so excited. But it's very different being in Spain for Christmas, which is a very slow-building season. Anyways, I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. Uh, I probably am most known for my work on the four Gospels as an exemplar of the four paths of transformation. And my work goes under the name Quadratus. Uh, and now I'm moving from that work to sort of reimagine the Christian year in its incarnational expression of the Christ. So and that's part of what we'll talk about tonight. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And your work has been um, of great, great benefit to me, both intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. Um, and, and, and I'll probably say something along those lines here in a minute before we get into the conversation, but just want to say how much I appreciate you being on today and uh, appreciate your heart, the way that you communicate the things that you communicate, the, the care with which you do it. And, uh, rare is the individual who says things as profound as you say, as clearly and as, as beautifully as you say them. I just so appreciate you and your work and your heart. And again, it's just such an honor to have you on today. Before we really get into the conversation, is there anything, any kind of, any upcoming events or anything that you're working on right now, project or projects or otherwise, that you just kind of want to plug here at the start so we don't get uh, lost and forget to come back to that? Yeah, thanks. There, there are two things. And one is I had promised everybody last year that I would have my book out the 13 days of Christmas this past fall. And then I got sick and I had surgery and the recovery was longer than we anticipated. Anyway, I am here to, to make that pledge again that this new book, The 13 Days of Christmas, will be out by next fall, fall of 2022. Um, and obviously, we're going to talk about why the 13 days and not the 12 days, etc. The other thing for me is uh, there's an organization or business called The Shift Network. And after a long process of discussion, they have, uh, they're offering me to teach a seven-week class, which I'm delighted to do. And it's going to start the first week of February. It's seven weeks, and it's called The Four Paths, One Journey. 
And it's my material on how the four Christian Gospels are an exemplar in an experience of the four paths of transformation. And um, the course will be live uh, on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific Coast time, noon uh, Eastern time. But then it also, uh, a little bit after the live session is over, it will also be available to people as a recording. So wherever you are in the world, you can uh, can take this course, which I'm really excited about. Excited about bringing this material of the four path journey to people all over the world and from all various religions and spiritual traditions. So I would uh, welcome you to to go to the the Shift Network and look for the link to the uh, four. Paths one journey. Yes, it is the shiftnetwork.com if you guys want to check that out. And the 13 days of Christmas. Yeah, I was really looking forward to that this year. I did buy the PDF last year and um read what was there and it was it was absolutely fantastic. But I I didn't know I didn't know that you were sick this year. Um I, I'm glad to hear that you're you're doing well and recovering though. So by all means take your time and take it easy on yourself. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It was it was, uh, I don't know whether illness is ever expected. This was very unexpected. It's like one day I felt great, and the next day I was in the emergency room. And anyway, um, looking for a much, a much easier 2022. Yeah, amen to that. Amen to that. Um, well, I guess let's just get into it today. Let's get into the, the Christmas material and just kind of see where spirit leads us in this conversation. Um, I guess I want to say right up front, and I was telling you um, just in brief off air, but just by way of introduction, um, I encountered your work. It had to have been maybe four or five years ago, and I'll try to keep this very brief. But um, I, and I, and I don't remember whose podcast it was on. It could have been on uh, one of the Rob Bell interviews or maybe the deconstructionists. I don't know. It was one of those two. And then that became a rabbit hole. I fell down and I listened to like everything I could find of yours. Um, <laughs> but I um, just a little bit of my story and everybody who's listening to this already knows this, but just, I guess, so kind of, you know, and then we can just work, see where the conversation goes. But I was a pastor for 12 years um, and very passionate about what I did. Um, very evangelical, charismatic, and um, very intense, very legalistic. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, a few years into that pastorate, I encountered grace. And I mostly encountered grace because I encountered my need for it. <laughs> and uh, I had encountered other people's need for <laughs> it, but that didn't quite mm, that, that didn't quite hit me the same way it hit me when I encountered my own need for it. And um, it 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 changed my whole life started to change. And, and part of the change was for the first time in my life, because of grace, I was able to ask questions that I couldn't ask before because I was afraid of what would happen. I wasn't afraid that I'd like lose my faith or anything. I was more just afraid. Well, you don't question certain things, but I now kind of had the grace to let myself question. And that questioning led me to uh, what now is colloquially being referred to as quote deconstruction, even though it's kind of a misappropriated a philosophical term, but regardless, that's kind of what it's known as today. And I went through a period while being a pastor that I was also, for all suits and purposes, an atheist. And I didn't really want that to happen. It was it was quite painful and um, really hard. 
but I didn't know what to do. I kind of felt stuck because it was my career. I had no, it wasn't like a side hustle for me. This was my life and my calling. It was the only thing I had ever planned on doing. I had three kids, a wife and a mortgage and everything else. What do you, what do, you do? And mm. But I found myself in that place where faith just, I didn't have it. And I was trying, but the what I had just wasn't working anymore. And um, so I went through that process. I, I came out on the other side of it, um, really transformed and with something like faith again, it wasn't what I once had. It was completely transformed and far more beautiful than what I had before. Um, but, you know, I had to step down from my pastoral role because I just didn't feel comfortable anymore in the denomination I was in with the beliefs I now had because it, it was just too different and I didn't want to be dishonest. And I found a way to make that transition and I did. And that was seven years ago this last October. Um, but there was something a few years ago, a few years back, I was still kind of dealing with, um, I don't really even know how to say it. It was just kind of like a vestigial darkness, just kind of this leftover sense of ennui and heaviness. I don't know how to articulate it, but it was just there and it was always there and I could always feel it. And it was in, it was in the Christmas season of that year that I would just wake up you know, things had gotten better. The first few years were absolutely terrible financially. I lost 75% of my income almost immediately. I had no other, I had no, nothing to fall back on. This was all I knew how to do. I literally had only ever worked fast food and retail was when I was in college. I didn't know what else to do with my life. And I really had to, you know, find some other paths until um, life took me a different way. But Things were better in this season, though, financially, and in all the other ways that they were bad before, they were now better, but this darkness was still there, and I don't, I don't, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it, and that was when I encountered your work, and specifically your work on, on Christmas and the radiance that is present within the darkness, which we will talk about today, I'm sure, and I was, I remember sitting in the parking lot of essentially what is our, in Michigan, our version of a Walmart, <laughs> getting ready to go grocery shopping. And I was just, I just so heavy. And I just felt so shrouded by this cloud. And I had been listening to one of your podcasts that day or a podcast that you were on that day. And something that you said about the radiance of Christmas just came roaring back to life, like inside of me. And it just kind of like broke off of me. I don't know how to explain it. It was like, all of a sudden I saw the darkness that I was in, as I've heard you say so eloquently, not as the end of a thing, but as the beginning of something. I saw it not as a death, but as the announcement of a pregnancy. And I realized that, I don't know, my eyes opened. And I realized the truth of where I actually was instead of whatever the maybe the lie was I had been believing. But um, it really, really opened my eyes and it really changed me. And I would say in that season of life is one of the thing, it's one of the things I credit with quote unquote, saving me in that season and really brought me through and, and to where I am today, um, which is much better. And, um, you know, that's, I, I so appreciate you for that. And, um, I can't say thank you enough, but that being what it is, I kind of want to talk about that today. And I promise that's the least you'll hear from me today <laughs> to our listeners. And I want to give the floor to you. Um, but, Let's get into that a little bit about Christmas, why it is when it is, why we celebrate it when we celebrate it, the connection with the solstice and darkness and radiance in the darkness and all of that beautiful, wonderful stuff that you speak and write so eloquently of. If you just kind of want to start us down that path and let's just see where we go. 
Well, uh, thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I don't really quite know, have the words to say my gratitude that something that I've said has meant that much to you, but thank you. Thank you. Um, where this is, it, it's such a large conversation, but I, I think where I want to start is, is uh, this fancy word that we have in spirituality or in Christian spirituality, incarnation. And that our God has become not only part of our bodies or that our bodies are part of God, but also that nature is part of God. And that early Christians wanted to tell the story of Jesus the Christ using nature. They didn't want to just tell the story. They wanted to tell the story using nature because in nature, our bodies have an experience, a sensation. Um, we have, we're inspired. We have fears. Um, all of that is what happens as we move through the cycle of nature. So there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, Christians deciding to put the feast of Christmas on the winter solstice to compete with the pagans. Nothing could be further from the truth. We weren't competing with anyone by choosing the winter solstice as the date of Christmas. We were recognizing what story in the Northern Hemisphere, and I realize the Southern Hemisphere has got a very different story on the 25th of December. What story is happening in nature on the 25th of December? And let's also recall that before we had to change the calendar about 500 years ago, that December the 25th was the date of the winter solstice. 500 years ago, what happened was is that we realized that a 362-day-a-year calendar was about three days off from the natural cycle of the sun. And over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the agricultural cycle and the calendar cycle were totally out of whack. And so the calendar needed to be rectified. And to do that, they added three days to the calendar. So we went from a 362-day calendar to a 365-day calendar. This meant that the winter solstice, which had always been the 25th of December, was now going to be back on either December 21st or December 22nd. The two feasts were seemingly going to be separate. Now, First of all, why would Christians want to celebrate the birth of Jesus the Christ on the winter solstice? And this is so important because the story of the winter solstice is it tells us that when things are at their darkest, when we are at the point of the year with the least sun, that that's at the moment that the reversal happens. Now, what's, what's really important for us to remember is, is that at the time of early Christianity, most people celebrated the winter solstice with anxiety and concern because most religions in those days felt that people had to engage in certain activity and sacrifice and spiritual practice 
to quote unquote make the sun come back or to win the sun's return, sun s u n. Christianity said, but we know two truths. We know first of all that Jesus the Christ, that the radiance and the grace of Jesus the Christ is always found afresh in us, in the dark time. And secondly. We know that that reality is not something that we have to win back. That it's a reality that is um, that is internal and eternal. So we looked at the nature story of the winter solstice and said, "Nature here is proclaiming the great birth of Jesus the Christ because." It's proclaiming that at the deepest dark is also the womb and the place of the new radiance. That's a spiritual truth that the Christian tradition has 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 shared in its whole history. And so, we, they, our ancestors did something, and they did it the whole year long. They looked at nature and they looked at the physical components of nature, and and the effect that nature had on our bodies and on our psyches, and found the Jesus story that nature was telling, and joined the two. So there is no um, difference. I mean, there 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 is no reason for Christians to feel that we must run away from the celebration of the winter solstice. No, 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 no. Just the opposite. We need to open ourselves to how the winter solstice, through the Christian lens, is telling a, a, a deeper story, an eternal story. The fact it's telling a spiritual inner story that in every dark time in our life, that as I say over and over again, that the dark time in our life is not how we end. The dark time in our life is how we begin. That the dark season is not the end of the year. The dark season is the beginning of the year. Yeah, you know, that's something I've so appreciated about the way you, I appreciate the way you talk about darkness because we equate darkness with the satanic or the quote unquote demonic, uh, something diabolical. But when I hear you talk about darkness, um, it's a hopeful thing. You know, it's not, it's not news of a death. It's news that we're going to have a baby, right? It's, right. it's, it's the positive pregnancy test coming back, not bad news over the phone. And, you know, even, even the, you know, the, the day traditionally begins at sundown, you right. know, in, in many cultures, not, you know, as we do it today. And the reason things work the way they work today has a lot more to do with industrialization and the establishment of like a 40 hour work week and resetting our clocks to match that than it does the like natural rhythm. A, a really significant thing happened again about 500 years ago with the invention of the clock mm-hmm. and also the starting of industrialization that financially they decided that it was better to change the day in the middle of the night for financial bookkeeping than what had always been the traditional time and the spiritual time 
of changing the day, which is just mm-hmm. past sunset. So, and, and I wonder, yeah, I, I just wonder how that affected human nature. I mean, how many people dread sundown? How many working people, quote unquote, dread sundown? Because to them, it just signifies, oh, it's the end of my day. And it's the beginning of the cycle where my boss owns my time. And, you know, it just, what a different mindset there is in seeing the the onset of darkness as the beginning of something potentially beautiful as opposed to a, a, a death. I mean, just simply switching the terms the, the, the terms that we use to describe it, I think, has to affect the overall psyche. And, and one is much more natural than the other. And, and, and one is far more reflective because it's how all cultures seem to have functioned in the past. So it seems that represents some kind of um, something that's just inherent to human nature and perhaps even divine that we know. And we've been for 500 years pushing against that. And no wonder people are so miserable. I mean, it's just one thing that adds to it. I don't know. I, I just find that a fascinating idea. Well, and there are a few cultures worldwide that mark the day beginning at sunrise. But mm-hmm. but over 80% of old culture, indigenous peoples, traditional culture, will mark the new day starting just past sunset. And this is the tradition of Judaism. And it comes from the first lines of Genesis, where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, which that was conceived of as as darkness from which all creation comes. But But creation doesn't come as an opposition to darkness. Creation, new creation, flows from darkness. That darkness is really womb time. And we might even go as far as to say that darkness is is a feminine face of our God. And so Judaism talks about darkness as a queen. And they open the Shabbat service by turning to the back doors of the synagogue and opening them. And they have this beautiful prayer about welcoming the queen of the night that comes to bring us rest and revitalization. And so this... The spiritual practice, which is different than our clock time, the spiritual practice of always seeing the arrival of darkness as the beginning, as the beginning, as the beginning, helps us when we're in an internal, personal time of darkness to go, oh, yes, just like the day, this darkness that has fallen in my life is not an end time, but a beginning time. And so, okay, then, so we encounter, as we go north, as we, Christianity, we encounter the Celts, and that's where we encounter the celebration of the solstice, because they are operating on a solar rather than lunar calendar, and we, we see that we encounter this tradition, and we see within it um, our own faith, our own, the gospel that we come bringing we see it already at work. I, I love that picture. I mean, do you think in some way this is even what Paul had in mind when he says that his mission is to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of Christ in them, the hope of glory? It's been hidden, but now it's revealed. It's not like it's not been there. It's always been there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I, I love to talk about is we cannot go anywhere and take Jesus. 
Yeah. We go everywhere and discover that Jesus is already there and help people make that connection. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea because in, you know, in the book of Acts, if you're preaching to um, Jews, you know, what are they going to, they're going to appeal to Moses, but when preaching to Greeks and Gentiles, early Christians would appeal to Socrates or, you know, and that almost seen as being the Moses of the, the, the Greeks, if you will, like, I, I just love that idea. I think it was, I think it was actually um, Dante who said that the whole world is pregnant with the gospel, essentially, and and the the mission of the church wasn't to go out and and destroy and tear down what was there before their arrival, but to bring out of what's already there the glorious riches of Christ. Absolutely, I, I love that. Yeah. So, so yeah. as long as we stayed in the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean is close to the equator. And the sun doesn't vary that dramatically. And so white Judaism, our major nature symbol was the moon. But then when we went north of the Alps, we met a far different culture. And I like to remind people that the Celtic world went from what today is Ireland to Turkey. And actually now we know that the Celtic culture went all the way across Russia and had outposts in China. Mm. This is, and this whole sweep of the Celtic world is bound together by um, looking at the sun as the major metaphor for their spiritual tradition. And because they are people of the Northern climate, it is absolutely critical that the sun regenerate for their crops and for their well-being and for their health, that they need the warmth to return. So the winter solstice was the anchor point of their spiritual practice because unless they felt with some anxiety that they did the right rituals, the right sacrifices at the winter solstice, would the sun come back or not? We meet that moment and we try to explain to them the story of Jesus the Christ, but they're like, unless we can explain it through their understanding of the solstice and their understanding of nature, they're not willing to, they're not willing to believe. And so we didn't destroy the rituals of the winter solstice. We helped the Celtic world see them in a new and what I believe a deeper and a more vibrant way. And I, I love that, um, and we'll, we'll get back in a minute to the three days between solstice and, and Christmas, but I love that when we initially experienced the Celtic world, I say we, the, the, the early Christians, on the day before the solstice, what is December the 24th, the solstice in those days being December the 25th, what were the Celts doing? Village by village by village, they were placing decorations on the sacred tree. Now, in those, in that time, much earlier, the sacred tree was not the fir tree, it was the oak tree. And it was only after the, the huge oak forests of Europe were decimated that, that they transitioned to the fir tree as the sacred tree. But the oak tree on the 24th of December is now barren. You know, the oak loses its leaves very late. And now on the 24th, it's barren, which again 
They don't see the barren as the end of time. They see the barrenness of the oak tree as the beginning of time. And they are placing dried fruits. They're hanging all these dried fruits and ribbons in the oak tree to celebrate its birth. Well, we come to that and we see the sacred tree being decorated with fruits and we go, we know that story. Here, here is the story of the Garden of Eden. Here, here's the story of life at the center of the Garden of Eden. And here is the sacred fruit on the, on the sacred tree. And in the birth of Jesus the Christ, paradise is restored. The gates are open again. So we take this 24th of December as the day that we Christians will decorate the sacred tree of paradise, which brings us such joy and wonder, which we know in the birth of Jesus the Christ. And we make December the 24th the feast of Adam and Eve. You know, I mean, we tend to see, and maybe this is more... um my Protestant history speaking than anything else, but Adam and Eve, it's a tragedy. The story of Adam and Eve in our estimation, it represents the fall and original sin and the destruction of everything. But, but the fact that the barrenness, as you said, it didn't, it didn't represent a tragedy. It was, it was life. It was new birth in comparing that or in, in, in calling and taking that custom, I suppose, and making it the feast of Adam and Eve, that seems to be a more redemptive view of Adam and Eve than the tragic view that I sort of grew up with. It, it's a beautiful reweaving of the story. It's 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 claiming the 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 greater truth of Adam and Eve, and the fact that now in the birth of Jesus, the garden is restored, the gates are open, the tree of life is here again, and and I love that sense, and I I I uh, I so. Um, remember being a, a small boy and the thing that I loved most about Christmas was not the gifts. Um, it was that Christmas tree, which in the old Lebanese tradition, I am first generation Lebanese, but again, I would go to bed on December the 24th and would wake up the next morning and the tree would be there for the first time. And I mean, just coming into the living room on Christmas morning with the tree lit and the lights and everything that wasn't there the night before, uh, just has always, that moment that the tree goes up and the lights go on and the wonder of that moment has always been yeah. Christmas to me. That has to strike some deep, uh, something deep in our soul that remembers the power of that imagery, even before we encounter like the profundity of it by learning its history and stuff. Because I mean, as a kid, yeah, sure. An illuminated fir tree is kind of a novelty, but like there's uh, there seems to be just something deeper that just sort of like epigenetically resonates when you see that. I used to lay with my head under the Christmas tree, just staring up at it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just yeah. and we, we later replaced the uh, the real tree with an artificial tree later on. But even the artificial tree, it's still just I would just sit there and stare up at it and like total and complete awe. There, there's something there's something deep inside of us that knows this tradition that knows this. And this time of year, we crave it. It seems, I don't know. It's beautiful. 
It is. And again, it's like, I'm not adoring the tree, but I'm, sure. but the tree is opening me to the experience of wonder and joy yeah. that helps me feel the presence of Jesus. Well, let, let, let's go back to the three-day difference because this is I, I love I love how it how the dilemma got resolved. So when because the church is the one who did the new calendar, and everything on the calendar was now going to be because you added three days to it. So all the old feasts on the old calendar were now going to be three days off their anchor in the nature story. And the most dramatic was, what are we going to do with Christmas? Because the solstice is now going to be the 21st or the 22nd. Christmas is going to be the 25th. Um, how do we rectify this? Well, so I love how Christianity does this. They start three days, three days. Well, Jesus was in the tomb three days. And on the third day, Jesus rose. Okay, that, that's, that's, that, that's great from the Jesus story. How do we anchor that in the season? Here was the answer. We know that at the solstice, winter and summer, that to the naked eye, our eye cannot see any difference in the sun, the S-U-N. So at the winter solstice, we can't initially see that it's growing again. And at the summer solstice, we can't initially see that it's diminishing again. But on the third day past solstice, the naked eye can perceive a difference. And so what we have now in the Northern Hemisphere is, yes, on Christmas morning, we not only have the great truth of Jesus the Christ's birth, but we have nature showing us that light and radiance has yet truly been reborn. That's awesome. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, I get I get so excited about this because Christianity is a spirituality of incarnation and not some yeah. abstract theology but but in ourselves in nature in ourselves. Yeah. Something that we feel regardless of whether we know the story. Yeah. But when you have the story, it's like everything just connects and comes together. Yeah. It's like y you feel it regardless. <laughs> you have to. I mean, I was just reading just this morning and I didn't even mean to happen upon it, but I was reading Man and His Symbols and I don't mm. remember if it was Young or one of the others, but just said every midwinter, everybody feels this instinctual um, desire to celebrate the birth of some kind of God, man, king, and they'll find some way to express it secular or otherwise, but it, they just feel it because it's just, it's part of, it's just in you. Well, and you just, there was just a hint of something there that I, I want to open up a bit more because you were, you, you had it right. Christmas is midwinter. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, for those who follow today's calendar, supposedly winter doesn't start until the solstice. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, that's that's on the calendar. That's like starting the day at midnight. Um, yeah. The Celts understood that you note the change of season when you have the first hint of it in your body. Hmm. So for them, winter begins 
on November the 2nd. Spring begins on February the 2nd. And Christmas is midwinter. And the other thing is, is that in our earliest origins as Christians, when we met the Celtic world, Advent began on the 2nd of November. Advent was the whole dark time from the 2nd of November to the Feast of Christmas. And it was considered the time of holy darkness because it was the womb time of the year from which we knew that the new radiance would be born. And of course, along with that, the feast of, quote unquote, the feast of all saints on November the 1st was the end of the old year and the beginning of the new year. People, what, I don't want to tell people what they need to do. For myself, I have really widened, quote unquote, Advent out to November and December. And, and, I, and I, what I really love about doing that is that November ends up being much quieter for me than, November, than December is. And I, I love having that early movement of Advent, being more still, thinking more about gratitude, um, using the November days to think more about the coming year and what I want. And then the, and then the busyness of December hits, which I, I used to object to. And now it's like, you know... Um, it, it move into it and embrace it and let it's, and let the giftedness of this time come to you. Yeah. So let, if you want, let's look at why 13 days. Yeah, please. Yep. And why is the carol about 12 days? Yes. Um, so here, here it is. If you count from, the first day, Christmas Day, the 25th of December, till the last day of the cycle, the sixth day of January, it's not 12 days, it's 13. And the number 13, we assumed from our Celtic peoples, because their festival for the winter solstice was 13 days. And why was it 13 days? Because for them, the number 13 was the number in honor of the Great Mother. And they thought that the winter solstice was the festival about birth. And who else to honor in the festival about birth but the Great Mother? So I can only imagine that when Christianity took this to herself, that she may have been um, embarrassed by the clear association with the mother. So we did this. We made Christmas Day, Christmas Day, followed by the 12 days of Christmas, giving us or keeping the 13 days of the Christmas cycle. And... We made, uh, and this is, this is ancient, um, we used four different gospel texts starting at sunset on December the 24th to tell the Christmas story. 
And depending on the time of night or day, you read or you prayed or you celebrated different aspects of the story. So at sunset of December the 24th, when the great feast of Christmas opens, um, our ancestors would read the genealogy from Matthew. And I know that this has got to be one of the, the nightmare pieces for somebody to stand up in church and read because it's got all those strange names. And it seems to be just a list of the guys and the fathers. There's a clunker in here. And I, I have, I have a, a bet that I'm going to win wherever I go in the world. I tell, I tell pastors, if you will preach on the genealogy, if you will really preach on the genealogy, I'll pay my airplane ticket to go there and be in the audience. <laughs> because Matthew's genealogy is built upon the story of five individuals who had a very odd time in their life that become part of the story of the Messiah. And the first of those stories is just sort of the most indicative of all of them. And if you're listening to this right now and there are little ones in the room, you might want to turn the volume down or wait a, wait a little bit later to pick this story back up. If you remember the story of Tamar, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And Judah's son that Tamar is married to dies. There's actually some indication that he was killed in a fight. And she's now bereft because she is a young woman. She is childless. And she now has no family, having lost Judah's son as her husband. She is both motherless, childless, and without a family. She goes to Judah and she begs him that when his third son comes of age, that Judah will marry him to her. Well, the son, third son comes of age and Judah's not making any indication that he's about to honor this. So Tamar does something in those days. She goes and she dresses um, as a certain type of woman. And she stands outside the place of worship. And again, if little ones are around, you might want to turn the volume down. When Judah goes to pray at this place of worship, he does what many men do in those days. He lies with a woman as part of his prayer routine. And Judah is there praying that God will bring Judah to her and that he might choose her and that she might conceive a child and continue in the line of Abraham. And in fact, that's what happens. Judah does choose her. She does conceive. And when Judah hears that she is conceived, he does what is in his right. He pronounces a death sentence on her for bringing shame on his family. She doesn't dispute the sentence, but she asks to go to Judah before she's killed. And when she does, she produces the ring 
that she asked him to give her before they lied together, even though he did not realize who he was lying with. And so continues the line of the Messiah, the line of the Messiah. We have this genealogy as the first gospel of Christmas, no story yet of Mary and Joseph, because it's telling the story that every time you think your wife has fallen into darkness, that this is an opportunity for deep and greater grace. This is not the end. It is wow. the beginning. <laughs> and that's the first gospel of Christmas that most churches, if they have a service at that hour, it's usually the, the, the family service or the, the children's service. And certainly the genealogy is the last gospel they're going to be reading. Right. <laughs> Second gospel of Christmas is in the night, later, perhaps very late, perhaps even midnight. And this gospel is the angel coming to the shepherds in the fields to proclaim that there has been a birth. And this again is read in the night because it is in the deep night that all of us will spiritually hear about this new birth. And it also is being proclaimed to the shepherds because the shepherds in those days are the outcasts. They are the people who have so offended, who have so gone against some taboo of the Jewish people that they are removed from polite society and made to do the work of the least and the lowest, which is to be out in the fields, taking care of the sheep and, and taking on the smell of the sheep. So when a shepherd comes into the village, everybody runs because it, it's better than having a bell around your neck. You know who this character is. You know he is to be shunned and shamed. You avoid him. And this is the person. This is, this is where the angel comes. In the depths of our night, the angel comes to that place in us which feels raw and primitive and half-starved. And that's the place where the new birth is announced. So, so in this ancient tradition, they stop reading the gospel at the point that the angel and the hosts go back into the heavens. And now we move to dawn. And at dawn, we pick up the story of the shepherds by talking about the fact that they go to Bethlehem and they see. So in the night, we hear the proclamation. But now we are actually standing at dawn on Christmas morning, and we too, like the shepherds, have gone and we see and we adore. And then the final gospel of Christmas, in the full light of Christmas Day, is the prologue. Because the prologue reminds us that the Jesus moment in history is not one moment in time, but it's every moment in time. And it didn't happen in only one place. It happens in every place. Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. 
Um, well, we are, we're coming up on an hour and I don't want to keep you longer than you want to be on. And I am personally, hear me out and believe me, I am in no hurry, but I want to be a respecter of your time. Um, so we can talk as long as you want to talk again. I just want to respect your time. Yeah. Let's, is there anything else you want to, you want to hit on here in the time we have left? Well, let's, let's fast forward to the 13th day of the cycle which is that day that we call epiphany. And epiphany is this beautiful, fancy Greek word, which means light or radiance made manifest. And I, I want us to remember that over, or to know that over Christian history, we have used three different gospels for the feast. So I know that today, when people hear this last day of the Christmas cycle, they think of the coming of the Magi. And that is certainly one expression of the spiritual truth of the light or the radiance made manifest. That now these people from the east, from the place where the sun rises, have made their journey to worship and adore the Christ. Uh, they have made a visible journey and pointed to this birth. Let's remember that for the Celts, the last day of the 13 days of the Winter Solstice Festival was about celebrating what started as a very small noticing that the light was growing. And by the 13th day, you know it, and I think we all know it, you get into those early days of January and you can feel how the strong, how the sun is getting stronger. It's amazing how quickly that experience can take root in us. And so Christianity used this, but we had three different gospels about the spiritual truth that not only is the sun going to be reborn, but that that radiance is going to become strong and it's going to feed us and it's going to nurture us. So the first one is the coming of the Magi. The second one is um, Jesus coming up out of the waters uh, with John the Baptist. And uh, I like to remind us that that moment in the gospel, which is called baptism, it is baptism, but it's Jewish baptism. It's not Christian baptism. And the Jews for a short time in their history, called that ritual baptism by a Greek name, but now they've gone back to their more uh, Hebraic name, and it's a mikvah bath. So Jesus is coming up out of the waters of the Jordan, having received the mikvah bath of John, and he hears something, and he sees something, and others might see something like a dove descending, etc. Again, Part of the spiritual power of this text is the new radiance, the new reality is, is now made manifest. Others are giving witness to it. The third gospel in our history, which has been used for the Feast of the Epiphany, is the, the great miracle from the Gospel of John of the wedding at Cana, where again, people saw the miracle of water become wine. And so what, what is important about the Feast of Epiphany 
is not the story of the Magi alone, but it's the deeper spiritual truth that this birth which has happened and that happens in us with our participation will grow, become strong, mature, and ultimately be a service. Now, having, having said that, and, and, and uh, Jeff and I were already having this conversation earlier, but today, this late day in December, this little Spanish village just put up Christmas lights and put up the Christmas tree uh, in the village square, which I have yet to see, and it's nighttime here. So in a few minutes, I'm going to sign off, and I'm going to go have my experience of the Christmas tree. Well, in honor of that... Um... I think maybe we should bring this to a close. Um, I do not want to keep you longer than I said I would. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for the wisdom that you have deposited in us today and um, over the years for me. And uh, just really, really grateful for it. And um, I wanted to... Uh, oh, you can hear my dog barking in the background there. <laughs> You're going to make, make me very homesick. A few years back, like the same the same year that um, I was talking about before where I first encountered your work, I remember I was, um, it, Christmas Christmas was over. It was, um, some, it was like mid-January or something like that. And I keep the decorations up for as long as is humanly possible. My wife usually gets the itch about mid-January. She's like, okay, I kind of want to put things back to normal. I'd leave them up all year personally, but uh, <laughs> I, I would just change the ornaments out with whatever the holiday was myself, but uh, that's just me. Um, but she was getting the itch, so we were taking them down. And I had this moment, because every other year when I take the Christmas stuff down, I always shed a little tear because I just get sad. I'm like, oh man, I love the lights. I love how whimsical and magical everything becomes you know, there's elves and all this mythological just beauty all around me. And in uh, taking it down, it's like, okay, going back to normal. Okay. But I was taking the decorations down that year. And I had this one moment where I removed something from the shelf. It was like a snow globe or something. I don't know. And I, it was, it was just one of those, it was just one of those moments. And when I took it off the shelf in my mind's eye, I could see the object still there but almost like in a non-corporeal form and then i was putting the solid object in a mm. box but it was like the spirit of the thing was still there and that was when it hit me that you know all of this the lights the all of this the fanfare the external stuff we do the spirit of that is always present and in this season it's like i throw a sheet over a ghost because it's when it's hardest to, to see maybe. And I make it visible through these decorations. But when I take it down, when I really understand what you talked about today, when I really understand the beauty of incarnation and, and all of this, that when I take the decorations down, if you will, I'm not really taking anything down. I'm just taking the sheet off of the ghost, <laughs> but it's still there. The spirit of the thing is there. It's like Jesus when he with the men on the road to Emmaus, he breaks the bread and he vanishes before their eyes. And when he vanishes, they then say, oh, wow, we're not our hearts burning within us as he spoke with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They sudden, his his disappearing in that physical, tangible form reminded them that they were feeling his presence when they didn't even know it was him who was there. And sometimes it's like understanding that that spirit, that presence because of Jesus, because of incarnation is always here. 
and the decorations accentuate what's always there, but that sometimes we lose sight of. And what you've taught about this has really allowed me to live in the spirit of that continuously. And um, I just so appreciate that. You make this come so alive to me. And um, I've always been like, number one Christmas fan, but uh, your work has just amped that up. And I'm so grateful. And it's been such an honor to have you on today as part of this Christmas uh, special. All right. So I'm going to give you one more story before we end. And well, and again, um, if you've got little ones around, you may want to turn the the volume down. Um, The Celts at the winter solstice the, the essential spiritual practice of the winter solstice for them was to engender generosity because without generosity, people would not be able to live through the rest of winter and literally survive until the warmth and the return to the fields in springtime. Part of the ritual for them at the winter solstice was to set bonfires and to offer sacrifice so that, quote-unquote, the green man would come back to earth. And the green man, they believed, had left the earth in the summertime to go back to his home on the North Star. And that their setting of the bonfire, that the green man would follow the smoke of the bonfire and come back into the earth, by coming into the fire and back down literally into the soil. And that this spirit of the green man was the spirit of greening and also the spirit of generosity. Well, I I don't think I have to spell out how close North Star is to another place or how close a bonfire is to a chimney and a hearth. And this story that we have is a, a story which ultimately is about generosity. And the story of Jesus the Christ is the story about generosity. And when do we most need to be generous? We need to be generous in the dark season because there are parts of ourselves And there are those amongst us who will not get to spring without our generosity. So I want to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas as well. Thank you so much for being on. You made my day talking about the Santa Claus uh, mythos. That's one of my one of my favorite concepts to explore. My kids are my daughter, 17. She graduates this year. My son is 15. And then my youngest daughter is 12 better get that right um but to this very to this very day i tell them heck yes santa claus is real but i've always had this sense that the green man saint nicholas you know it's now come to us in the form of it's take it took the form of saint nicholas it now comes to us in the form of the norman rockwell coca-cola santa but beneath it all it's it's this spirit of generosity and we have projected all of all of this goodness and love into this figure and then when once a year we elevate it it's like do we activate that somehow and is it some something that spirit uses from the unconscious to like 
move us to generosity. You know, I, I don't know. I'm really of the belief that it works something like that because it does happen. Well, it does. And I, of course, yeah, in my, my home in the States is in the, the U.S. Southwest. And I, I know the Hopi and the Pueblo peoples. And they, they have a practice that I wish that we would consider for ourselves. Um, in their ritual dances, there are people in the tribe that put on the dress of different spirits and do these public dances. And then there comes a moment when they literally have these figures take off their masks in front of the children. And they begin to teach them that the outer mask was to help them understand an inner reality. Yeah. And that the inner reality is true. Mm. And I just, it's like so many, I hear so much for people that when they found out that a certain figure at Christmas was quote unquote not true, it shattered their whole world that they weren't enabled to understand that yes, that figure is true. Yeah. No, that's so beautiful. I, I'm, I'm so, I know that I'm, I'm weird. I know that I'm bent toward the mystical, but I never really grew out of Santa Claus. Even when I was a kid, I always kept a space. I mean, like I'm a 17, 18 year old kid. I'm like every other 17 or 18 year old kid, but like Deep inside, like on Christmas Eve, I still could like feel the presence of whatever that was. I obviously, I obviously, I understand that differently now than I did then. But like, it's this is reality. This is this is the spirit of the Christ within us, and all of these different archetypal ideas and images are drawn upon. To I don't know. I just love that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that the magic of all of that does not have to die, which is kind of how it used to be taught in the Protestant context I came from, that all the magic of it had to be kind of sucked out of it. And it had to just be understood as this literal event that happened in history. And it's exactly what it says on the page and nothing more. And all of these mythical elements are just, you know, paganization and all this kind of stuff. And I just love that people like you are, here re-enchanting and giving us permission to really feel the quote-unquote magic of it all still. I don't know. I just appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're most welcome. Thank you, Jeff. And again, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you as well. 